You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast produced by Veteran Strategies and featuring conversations with fascinating and impactful men and women who have shaped our world, our communities, and our history. My name is Robert Vane, Principal of Veteran Strategies, and your host for our discussion. You are listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise, and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmond Construction, Leaders and Legends LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. You may find all your sales and rental equipment needs at McAllister.com. We are pleased to announce our podcast is a member of the All Indiana Podcast Network in partnership with Wish TV. You may find Leaders and Legends at AllIndianaPodcastNetwork.com. Thinking of starting a podcast or need to host a public meeting? Let Leaders and Legends LLC be your partner as you look for new ways to communicate your message. Please contact Chris Spangle and me at leadersandlegends.net. I thought I'd have to choose between an IT degree and certifications until I found WGU. There I earned both through one program. WGU prepared me to earn certs from CompTIA and others at no extra cost. WGU IT bachelor's and master's degrees have no set class times. Rather, students progress at their pace, completing as many courses as they can each six-month term. I graduated faster, and you could too. Learn more at wgu.edu. Howie Politics and State Affairs Pro offer insider election coverage, polling, and analysis in Indiana. Our nonpartisan news and legislative tools create a winning combination pro subscribers can't live without. For all the resources you need this election season and beyond, visit pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. That's pro.stateaffairs.com slash in. Thank you for joining us on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Our guest today is Dr. Nicola Tallis. She is one of the world's best-selling and, quite frankly, most delightful historians. She received her PhD from the University of Winchester. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah. In 2019 and has written for several history magazines, including BBC History, which I've subscribed to for years. It's a must have if you like history of all all time periods and countries. In History Revealed is another publication. Dr. Talos also has made numerous television and radio appearances. You can look her up on YouTube. Her books include Crown of Blood, The Deadly Inheritance of Lady Jane Grey. We're going to talk about Miss Grey in this podcast. The Tumultuous Tale, is it Lettuce Nollies? Uh, Lettuce Knowles. Lettuce Knowles. Okay, I was going to ask you that before we recorded. (laughs) And then I was going to ask how the Brits get Lester out of L-E-I-C-E-S-T-E-R. Yeah, Lester. Countess of Lester. Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort, Tudor Matriarch, and her new book, which if you follow her on Twitter, Dr. Tallis, what's your Twitter handle? It is at Nicola. No, sorry. Yeah, no, it is. It's at Nicola Tallis. <laughs> to think about that. Yeah. <laughs> you will see she has a new book coming out. 
called All the Queen's Jewels. 1445 to 1548, Power, Majesty, and Display. We will put a link to Dr. Talis's website when we post this podcast interview. Dr. Talis, thank you so much. You're joining us from Bath, England. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. Thank you so much for having me and for such a lovely introduction. Well, you're very kind to share a little bit of time with with us here in the United States on the Leaders and Legends podcast. Um, as we were discussing beforehand, um, my graduate degree is in medieval history. I'm a tremendous fan of the English people of the of the British people, and as I've told, I think both Susanna Lipscomb uh, and Tracy Borman, I would move there tomorrow. It is a <laughs> wonderful, it is a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful place. Uh, so. Uh, the most proximate event or happening, if that's the right term, that Americans would would maybe have as a frame of reference for the royal family, for the British monarchy, isn't Meghan Markle. It's not that. It's <laughs> the, it's the Queen's pat, platinum jubilee. What what are yeah. your what were your impressions of the celebration and general her thought thoughts on her seventy year reign? It's incredible. And it's incredible to live through and experience a piece of history as well, I think. Uh, So I was actually, I was very fortunate because at the time of the Jubilee, I was on a cruise, a special Jubilee cruise, which was touring the British Isles. And I was talking about the crown jewels as a part of um, that cruise. And I was in really great company, actually, with lots and lots of royal enthusiasts, but also with lots of people who either worked for the Queen or worked for members of the royal family. I think, actually, I was probably the odd one out because (laughs) I'm the only person who hadn't worked for the royal family, although I have met the Duchess of Cornwall. So that's that's something that's my claim to fame, I guess. (laughs) I was going to ask you, so tell the audience who the Duchess of Cornwall is. The Duchess of Cornwall is Camilla, Prince Charles's wife. Um, And I met her in 2012 when I was working at Sudley Castle, and which is or was the former home of Catherine Parr, Henry Gates' sixth wife. Who lived? Who, yeah. Yeah, she lived. lived. <laughs> oh, hold on a second. Forgive me. I forgot to do this at the beginning. Chris Spangle knows. Of course, since we don't post the video for this podcast, this is meaningless for the listeners. But this okay. is my official British historian podcast shirt. Wow. Oh, I love that. It's all in the execution. Super cool. I want one of those. <laughs> Take care of that. Anyway, forgive me. Go ahead. Maybe. Yes. Yeah, so 488. Yeah, so former home of uh, sixth wife of Henry VIII, sixth wife of Henry VIII, and anyway, Camilla, the Duchess of Cornwall, she came to visit Sudley Castle for the day. We were all told not to talk to her unless she came and spoke to us. Uh, so I was fully expecting to just maybe catch a little glimpse of her, but she was so nice. She came over and said hello and asked how I was and how long I'd been working there. So it was a brief conversation, but a very nice conversation. Well, you know, I guess here we kind of think that you stumble into royals, you know, all the time at the at the market or the whatever. But, uh, you know, Dr. Uh, Borman, who was a wonderful podcast guest, absolutely wonderful. 
I think she, as I recall, she said she's never met any of them. Well, okay. So Tracy Borman is a really good friend of mine. And I don't know if she told you this, but what I do know is that her daughter presented the flowers to Kate, the Duchess of Cambridge, when she visited Hampton Court. So I don't know, maybe, maybe Dr. Borman didn't actually meet her. I'm not sure, but she definitely, I know that that happened. Well, I'll have to send Dr. Borman an email because I'm sure she was over the moon at that opportunity. We're, yeah. I think most of us over here in the United States have a pretty good uh, attitude towards the British monarchy. I mean, George III's been dead for, he died in 1820, so a couple yeah. hundred years plus two. And so we seem fascinated by it. Uh, how do the Brits, A, feel about the monarchy? Because I know it shifts. I read the polls, it talks yeah. about how it kind of goes up and down. And and what does someone like you think about the Americans' fascination with the British monarchy? I love it. I think it's great. And um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I love speaking to anybody about history. And um, I think that, yeah, like you say, there is a shifting or has been a shifting attitude towards the royal family. I think there's a lot of love for Her Majesty the Queen and deservedly so because, I mean, she's amazing. She is amazing. She is a true example of a woman who has put duty before everything else and love of her country. And I just think it's remarkable that she's, you know, she she deserves to retire, doesn't she? She's, you know, she's well <laughs> and truly, <laughs> she's well and truly gone above and beyond. Uh, but she's carrying on and I think we're very lucky to have her to be perfectly honest and I think you know even here we're very patriotic about the royals and I think it's lovely that we've got the opportunity to share that you know not just with you but with the rest of the world as well there has not been a British monarch who abdicated save for Edward VIII and his American wife yeah was there any thought that sh- she would abdicate? I read stories about she was going to abdicate in favor of Charles, and then Charles is, you know, going to abdicate in front of, in, in favor of his son, uh, Prince William. There's no chance of any of that happening, in your opinion, or am I wrong? No, no, absolutely not. I don't. I don't think. I certainly don't think that the Queen is ever going to abdicate, and no way with Charles either. I think that he has been waiting very patiently. And <laughs> and I also think in the last few years, he's really grown in popularity. Um, and I think, and the same actually with Camilla, with the Duchess of Cornwall, she is now becoming increasingly popular. And um, I think I really like some of the things that Charles stands for. I really like, you know, his approach to, caring for the environment. And so I don't think that there's any way that he's going to abdicate. So it'll be interesting to see, you know, what he's like. Is the Duchess of Cambridge the most popular royal family member, save for the Queen? I think so. She's, I mean, there is, there is something about Kate and that everybody seems to love. And I mean, she hasn't really put a foot wrong, has she? Like, you you don't hear much negative press about her at all. She is, by all accounts, 
you know, she's the ideal consort because she is devoted to William and supporting him. And by all accounts, she's also a devoted mother to those three children. So I I, I think Kate's brilliant. And um, it'll be really interesting to see what she's like when she finally comes to the fore. Not yet. We're not ready for that yet. But whenever <laughs> that, that is. <laughs> how did how did Britain commemorate the anniversary of Princess Diana's tragic death in the Paris tunnel? There were some stories over here about it. And of course, you know, now we get access to everything. But just in terms of U.S. publications, I I saw several at the supermarket and came through my feed on the Internet. Was that do you remember that? And and what do you think Diana's lasting impact is? Um, Do you know, I think so when the the anniversary, um, when the anniversary was upon us, um, I have to say, I, I kind of missed most of that because. I have been locked away writing for most of the summer. So I've kind of <laughs> <laughs> And if you follow if you follow Dr. Talis on Twitter, you can see exactly where she wrote. Little table, her yeah. her, her laptop, her coffee, her flowers. It's just right there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, it so is. Um yeah, so I kind of I've kind of been a bit out of the loop with things that have been going on, but do you know, um so my mother absolutely loves loves loved Diana has always loved Diana and um I remember you know I was I I was quite small when she passed away and I I still remember that day when I you know found out and telling my mother about that and for years and years uh, religiously each year my mother used to visit Althorpe so Diana's family estate um in Northamptonshire Um, And she used to take flowers there every year to leave by the lake where Diana is buried. And so for several years, I was a part of that as well, because I used to go and join in with doing that. And um, I mean, you know, there's all sorts in the press about Diana. But to my mind, I think that we should remember her for all of the good that she did. And you know, she did, she touched a lot of people's lives. And, you know, again, when I was on this, this cruise for the Queen's Jubilee, and we heard from, um, let me get this right, we heard from Charles and Diana's um, assistant private secretary. And he was just talking about what a warm person she was and how fun and easy she was to be around. And that's something that seems to be spoken about a lot with her and you know and I, I think that um I think it just must be extremely painful for Harry and William to you know he keep hearing about these conspiracy theories and you know the, the negative press and I think you know she was ultimately a, a really really good person and we shouldn't lose sight of that that's my view well that's the view of her obviously here in the States. Um, yeah. Is it, it's interesting. I find it, you know, a little bit sad, but also very beautiful and correct me if I don't have this right, but doesn't Prince William's wife, Catherine, wear his mother's wedding ring. 
engagement ring engagement ring yeah 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 absolutely so no I think I think that's very touching as well and a nice way of of, um remembering her for sure you're listening to the leaders and legends podcast we are with historian Nicola Tallis she has been so kind to zoom from over in Bath England to join our little history nerd uh, conclave here in Indianapolis Indiana Speaking of new histories and your new book, uh, there is a terrific cadre of female historians, not only the Tudor Stewart period, but others. Uh, uh, Susanna Lipscomb, who came on the podcast, Dr. Susanna Lipscomb, Dr. Tracy Borman, who came on the podcast. She was wonderful. Helen Carr, who I'd love to have on because she wrote the book about John of Gaunt. Uh, Yania Ramirez. And then you, you, of course, of course, what perspectives do, do this new sort of new generation, what perspectives do you all bring that may have been missed in the past from people like Skyersbrick and Elton and various other historians of Britain? Um, I mean, I think that every historian just brings, it sounds probably a bit, um, I don't know, a bit obvious, but I think I feel like each historian just brings a bit to themselves and their own personality to their work. Everybody has got a new approach and a slightly different approach. And I always I just think it's great to have so many talented historians out there who all add something new to the field. And what's really great is the fact that quite often not everybody agrees and it just goes to show you know history is interpretive and one person's interpretation of one piece of evidence may not coincide with another's and I think that's just that's the joy of and the beauty of history is that everybody will have their own approach and everybody will have a different way of looking at it and we really need to keep that going and encourage that for sure. Okay, so we're going to get into that. Okay, I want to ask you about your book, your new book. Yeah. Then I want to ask you this question, only because it was kind of funny, the reaction. So I asked Dr. Lipscomb, who was a terrific guest. She was so generous. She was so fun. It was great to talk to her. Who was the most um, overrated person in British history? (laughs) And I'm going to ask you this question. I'm going to ask you that same question. But... Okay. Her answer was Queen Elizabeth I. And I thought poor Tracy Borman was going to fall out of her chair when I asked her that <laughs> and told her of Dr. Lipscomb's answer. Uh, so anyway, I'm going to since you just talked about historians and different perspectives and not agreeing. So. Yeah. Dr. Tallis, who is the most overrated person in British history. Do you know, I do, I do kind of agree with Susanna about Elizabeth. <laughs> Tracy, <laughs> Tracy won't like me for that. <laughs> but I mean, she is overrated. But for the sake of being different, I'm going to say. Okay, Henry stop. Hitch. No, no, no. Helps. Yeah, okay. you got to say you got to say why. Why do you think oh, okay. she's why? overrated? Why? Um, because I think that, yes, there's no doubt that, you know, Elizabeth's brilliant in all sorts of different ways. But aren't we just kind of, I don't know, I I feel like the whole cult of Gloriana is is exactly that. And, you know, we can see it in Elizabeth's portraits, for example. They're so overrated. That 
those personify exactly why Elizabeth is overrated. You know, she's standing there with a rainbow in one of them um, with eyes and ears, um, decorating her dress. You know, she's got a pelican in another portrait. All of these, you know, symbolize these different things. I mean, come on, at the end of the day, she's a woman. Yes, an interesting woman, but she's a woman. Does she, what do you think is the, the genesis of her fame, which, which leads her in your opinion to be overrated? Um, is it all about the Armada? Is it all about staying Protestant after Bloody Mary? Well, yeah, I think there's some of that, but I also think that some of it stems from James I. And I think that, you know, quite quickly when James succeeds to the throne, um, people become disillusioned with him quite quickly because he hasn't got the same common touch and popularity as Elizabeth has. And I think it's then that people start looking back and thinking, oh, back in the days of good Queen Bess. Good Queen Bess, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I think it starts quite soon after Elizabeth's death. And yeah, you know, of course, the Armada has a role to to play in that as well. But I think really the whole kind of cult of Elizabeth has never really gone away. And I mean, well, yeah, obviously it's not gone away because people are still interested about her. People are still talking about her. Um, Her namesake is on the throne. Yeah, exactly. Her namesake is on the throne. And I think... Let's not forget, yes, she was extremely intelligent, shaped by her experiences when she was younger, which no doubt contributed to her success as queen. But she didn't do all of that on her own. You know, she had people like William Cecil around her, supporting her, helping her. Um, So, yeah, it's kind of I like Elizabeth, but it's not all about Elizabeth. So you said, or you started to say before we went on uh, about the why of Elizabeth I. Um, yeah. Henry VIII is the most overrated. Yeah. I mean, he is, isn't he? He's like, he is like Elizabeth. And don't get me wrong, because I'm really interested in Henry VIII. You know, I've researched him and written about him in, in various contexts in books and articles and so on. And he is super interesting. But um I don't know like do we I'm kind of just I'm kind of just done with the whole king's great matter king falls in love with Anne Boleyn divorces Catherine of I'm just so done with it it's it's just (laughs) (laughs) is that is that I mean he's what did what did Shakespeare say about or Cassius say about um, Julius Caesar and Shakespeare why man he doth bestride our narrow world like a colossus <laughs> isn't kind of what henry VIII does to the 16th century he just kind of bestrides it and, and yeah. there seems to be a whether it's the king in parliament or just the wives or the or the the fight with the pope uh, why do you yeah. think he, he attracts so much attention well, it is that whole thing of having six wives, isn't it? No, without doubt, because nobody, no other monarch in British history has done that either before or since. Thank goodness. Don't think we could cope with another one. Um, <laughs> so um, I think that is without doubt. That's part of it. But also, I think because some of these women were such fascinating characters within their own right, 
of course, Anne Boleyn being the most most famous, I suppose. And so I think that she has in turn contributed to that, um, that uh, yeah, that popularity, I guess, of Henry VIII as a, a subject. But I do think, I do feel that it's kind of a shame because when we think of the Tudors, those are the two personalities that immediately spring to mind are Henry VIII and Elizabeth and probably then Anne Boleyn. Um, And, you know, there were other, there were, in my opinion, anyway, there were four other Tudor monarchs. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I think that they are all equally worthy of being spoken about in their own right and being remembered in their own right as well. So it's not just about Henry and Elizabeth. It's Henry the seventh, Edward the sixth. Yeah. Mary the first. Yeah. Bloody Mary. And then a lady Jane Grey, who we're going to ask about in a little bit. Because (laughs) Tracy Borman included her in the uh, crown and scepter book. And so I asked her about that. (laughs) Uh, But let me ask you another question first. And then I want to talk about your book. Uh, we discussed who's the most overrated person in British history. Who is the most underrated? Okay, I'm going to say I'm torn between two, but I'm going to go with I'm going to go with Lady Jane Grey. Why yeah. underrated for such a short reign? Yeah, but see, it's not all about the rain because this is so this is kind of my life mission is to (laughs) is to push Jane to the forefront and to highlight just how important a person she was, not just because she, you know, was England's shortest reigning monarch. But because she was somebody who was so, so intelligent. So it's really sad, actually, that her life was so unfulfilled because she was so clever that she was believed by her contemporaries to be more intelligent than Elizabeth, who, you know, again, contemporaries agreed she was very intelligent. So believed to be more intelligent than Elizabeth and also Edward VI. And to me, I find that really astonishing because people not only in England were writing about how clever she was, but also scholars and theologians abroad on the continent were talking about how intelligent this young girl was. And to me, that is just so remarkable in an age when women don't appear too frequently in the sources and definitely not teenage girls living in the rural English countryside as she was. So remarkable. How did she come to, is it nine days? Is that right? Do I have that right? How many days? Well, I would argue 13, but um, (laughs) (laughs) well, you have the PhD, so we'll say 13. How did She, she, how did she come to the throne? What was her path? Yes. So her path was she was a great niece of Henry VIII. So she had been included in Henry VIII's will in terms of the succession. But um, she was always kind of a, I suppose we'd say a last resort in some ways, because Henry's children came in front of her. And I guess he would have always expected that at least one of them would have children of their own. Lady Jane Grey is the backup plan, um, but that all changed in 1553 when Edward VI, 15 years old, falls ill, soon becomes clear that 
it's going to be fatal. He's got no children to succeed him. He's all stringently Protestant. Next in line to the throne is Mary, stringently Catholic. Edward doesn't want um, <laughs> Edward doesn't want Mary to be given the chance to succeed, but can't rule out Mary without also ruling out Elizabeth. Um, so decides to cut both his half sisters out of the succession on the grounds of their previous illegitimacy uh, when Henry VIII separated from their mothers and instead skips to Lady Jane Grey. She becomes heir and then queen. Why was she killed? Why was she killed? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, do you know, it's, it's that's the tragedy of her life, really. She was killed because of the actions of others, because... She she had been tried and condemned for treason at the end of 1553, but Mary had made it clear that she intended to spare Jane's life. And I think that she would have been true to her word um, had it not been for the fact that Jane's father became involved in the Wyatt Rebellion in early 1554 to depose Mary and the rebellion went very badly wrong. And unfortunately, the involvement of Jane's father sealed her fate. And even though Jane hadn't been involved in any way, I think Mary at this time felt very reluctantly that she had no other choice but to make an example of her, really. And she she was executed. Isn't, isn't there a beautiful painting of her execution? She's wearing a blindfold, like she has her hand on the block or something like that. Yeah. Really just whoever painted it clearly wanted... And I don't think it was Holbein or was it? I, was it, Paul, it? De, Paul Delaroche? Yes, yes, yes. That's right. That's yeah. right. Clearly, yeah. I got the sense from looking at that painting several times that, that he wanted her memory to be one of bravery. Like she she accepted her fate as a brave yeah. person. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And that portrait has had such a profound effect on shaping people's opinions and uh, perceptions of Jane it's it's really really powerful as you said and yeah she did meet her end with bravery and with courage and also was determined to be seen as this martyr for her Protestant faith as well you know Mary had attempted to convert Jane to Catholicism just days before her execution to try and save her soul in Mary's view but you know Jane was having none of that she was she was very steadfast in her religious beliefs. And I think that that was, I think she'd accepted by that point that she was going to die and wanted to be remembered as somebody who had died partly by reason of their faith. You are listening to the leaders and legends podcast. We are talking with Dr. Nicola Tallis. She is zooming from Bath, England to talk about British history and some of her writings and, who we think, who you think, who she thinks is overrated and underrated. Uh, tell us about your your new book. It's called All the Queen's Jewels, 1445 to 1548, Power, Majesty, and Display. Are there any specific goals in your research on this? Debunk myths, elevate, illuminate secrets? Yeah. It's, so this, is, this book is 
a a labour of love, I suppose, because it is based on the research that I conducted for my doctorate. So I began researching jewels about nine years ago, and it's so it's it's sort of it's developed from my thesis, and it's about showing a different side to. 10 queens who lived throughout this period. So the queens uh, that range from, sorry, that begin with Margaret of Anjou and end with Catherine Parr. And it's really about showing how these women were able to use jewellery as a means of showcasing power, of um, crafting their identities as queen consorts, and, and so it looks at the jewels that queens had that they owned and had access to. It, uh, it looks at the ways in which they used these jewels, at how they acquired these jewels. And it also tries to track some of these jewels through you know, inventories and portraiture. So it's, it's been really interesting. And I feel like even though the book is coming out in the autumn, it's still very much an ongoing project in in kind because you know there's there's so much more to say um and i i feel that jewels are kind of a really underrated aspect of history but what interests me about them is that like people they've got their own stories to tell and they're often equally as fascinating as the people who wore them do you want to discuss your podcast very quickly? Oh yeah, yeah, history gems. Yeah. So again, <laughs> so that that's that was born out of my love of of jewel history as well and that again that's all about jewels from different time periods and different places throughout history so everything from um you know uh, we've had I've had somebody I had the brilliant Gareth Russell talking about Fabergé for example um, he is a, a future podcast guest as a matter of fact he's gonna oh, come on he? talk about his new book yes I can't then, wait I read his book he wrote didn't he write, write the book um like the three emperors or something the emperors he did he write yeah, that book about um, yeah, I yeah. read that book it's terrific about Kaiser yeah. Wilhelm and uh the czar Nicholas II and George V it's a terrific yeah. book but he has another one come out and his publicist reached out so I can't wait to talk to him oh he's brilliant he's so great um yeah and so knowledgeable so I'm sure you'll really enjoy that um but yeah we we had him talking about Fabergé which was great and you know, we had Tracy Borman talking about Elizabeth. <laughs> um, and yeah, it's, <laughs> we just had um, lots of different people talking about lots of different jewels throughout history. And so, again, it's kind of it's been trying to bring stories to the fore throughout history in a different way, I suppose. Is the Hope Diamond cursed? <laughs> um do you know what I sh- I need to that's that's the hope diamond is something that I've been looking into recently apparently it is cursed but I can't give you a <laughs> I can't give we you a, any more than that really because I don't know I don't know enough about it but apparently it is yeah so I've heard <laughs> the crown jewels 
for those of us who have seen them are, are spectacular. But isn't is it fair to say that that's just a what's on display in, in the Tower of London is just a small fraction of what's been associated with British royalty in history? Yeah, absolutely, it is. And the crown jewels that we see at the Tower of London today are the new crown jewels, if you can call them that, um, because you know they date from the reign of Charles II. They were made especially for his coronation because the old crown jewels, the medieval crown jewels, had been melted down under um, Oliver Cromwell's interregnum, and which is really sad. Um, and especially if you study material culture like me, um, I mean, there are a couple of things left, but, but not very much. So, yeah, the current jewels date from the 1660s and with some additions and some alterations, as is often the case, particularly with jewels, they have pretty much been used at the coronation of coronations of every monarch since. You read a lot, especially in medieval history, about the the king pawning the crown jewels in order to pay for whatever adventure or this and that yeah. he was involved in. But after 1660, I don't read much about that happening. Is, is there a particular reason why or am I missing something? Um, you know, that's a really good question. And, and I don't know, to be perfectly honest. Um, yeah, I mean... Um, it's a last resort, really. People, monarchs pawns the crown jewels because obviously their value and the fact that they were portable made them, you know, the perfect, the perfect items to for to gain capital. Um, but no, you're right, actually, having now that you've said that, you don't really you don't really see that happening um much. Well, Britain had a completely different way of financing almost everything. I mean, a lot yeah. of the trade and this and that, but it just seems that at a certain point, Britain became so rich or the monarch did that they didn't need to finance by pawning. But people like Edward III or, you know, choose your medieval monarch after 1066 did need to do that. Or they would take the money, borrow the money from the Jewish population and then kick them out, which is what Longshanks did. Yeah, I mean, yes, you do see that. Um, I mean, you do see... Under the um, during the reign of Charles II, that somebody tries to steal the crown jewels, mm-hmm. um, which is, of course, Colonel Blood in 1671. All goes wrong, fortunately for us. But um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but no, you're right. You don't you don't see that happening so much. And I'm not sure because you know Charles II didn't have tons of money. Um, e- even and- with even with his uh, checks coming over from uh, Versailles. Well, okay, yeah, that that helped the situation, I'm sure. <laughs> and <laughs> I don't know enough about that period to comment, but um, but yeah, it's a good point, actually. I might, I you've kind of sparked something there that I should go away and look into. Do you have a favorite gem? Do I have a favorite gem? I, I should um, ask, and whoever gets to marry you, is he or she going to be under a hell of a lot of pressure to come up with something great for your finger? You're like, well, you know, I'm already I was... married. Oh, okay. Well, it's like I've studied gyms my whole life, so you're going to have to go really <laughs> strong on this one. I know. My husband did really well, actually. He designed my engagement ring himself, so I can't, you know, and it's really beautiful. So <laughs> <laughs> he did very, very well, and it, it's diamond as well, which is great because 
you know, diamonds have got all sorts of really interesting symbolism attached to them. So, um, yeah, so he did well on that front. <laughs> so um, that is that is your favorite gem. Do you have a second favorite gem? Yeah. OK, second favorite gem. I don't know where it is right now. Nobody does apart from the owner. But second favorite gem would be La Peregrina. So the beautiful pearl that stems its history stems back over 500 years it was in the spanish royal family for um for a long long time and there's some debate over whether philip of spain gave that to mary the first um but what we do know for sure this is a great story so at one point richard burton bought la peregrina do you know this story okay so go ahead go ahead Okay, so Richard Burton buys this famous, beautiful pearl for Elizabeth Taylor. And one morning they can't find the pearl. And anyway, um, they notice that their puppy is chewing on something. And it is La Peregrina, this 500-year-old pearl, which luckily was not damaged by uh, the puppies chewing. (laughs) But it's kind of... Yeah, it's, it's kind of a shame because it was sold into a private collection. So nobody knows where it is anymore, which is kind of a shame. But yeah. Didn't he buy her? Is it 67 carats? The Taylor Burton diamond that was so famous 50 years ago when he bought it. And I don't know what happened to that, but it's just, I think it's 60 some carats as her engagement ring yeah. or some present. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. I don't know. Again, I don't know what happens to that either, but that sounds right. That sounds familiar. Nearly every historian uh, ranks Bosworth, the Battle of Bosworth Field in 1485. Yeah. As one of the seminal and watershed events in English history. But but is it bigger than that? Is it a, what it's what is its impact on world history in your view? And how different would British history have been had Richard III won? Hmm. Yeah, that's a really good question. Bosworth, yeah, Bosworth is a massive event in terms of British history. And it's a shame in some ways because it's not actually particularly well documented so there are still a lot of unanswered questions about Bosworth. Um, in terms of world history, I don't know. Is it is it that big a deal in terms of world history? Um, would would, would, would it could it be in the sense that that because of Henry VIII eventually okay, gaining yeah. the throne and how the Protestant Reformation and everything that happened in Europe. And then, I mean, if you get into the counter reformation and then the age of exploration, <laughs> that sort of thing, but would Richard have, you know, been more likely given his personality to be loyal to the Pope? Yeah. See, that's a really, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, there's no doubt that, I mean, what we do know, what is important to say, and I'm sure your listeners will already know this anyway, is that Henry VIII, by the time he dies, um, he still, his beliefs are basically intrinsically Catholic. They are. It's only the Pope's authority that he contests. Um, so, 
yeah, it's it's really difficult with Richard. I think um, I think one way or the other, religious reform would have found its way into England, and I don't think Richard would have behaved in the same way as Henry. Um, but I guess it depends if he'd found a, a passion for a woman that he was desperate to have. And he was, you know, and he had another wife by that time who was still alive. I don't know. It's it's kind of, it's a really difficult one. Well, these sorts of counterfactuals, like, you know, you can't be right, you can't be wrong. But I mean, Henry yeah. VIII, as we were talking earlier, was such a dominant personality. Um, but mm. let me ask you, we brought up Richard III. So <laughs> they find his bones in a car park. Yeah. As a historian, what mm. was your reaction? Um, do you know what? To begin with, I was actually very skeptical. Um, I don't know why. I just, I think because there were different accounts of what happened to Richard's body after Bosworth. And in some ways, it seemed... Um, I don't know. It kind of seemed like the chances of finding him would be quite slim. So, yeah, when when the bones were uncovered and it was revealed that, yes, they are those of Richard. I don't know. In some ways, it kind of seemed like it was almost too good to be true. And I remember watching the uh, the the program where they revealed the results and thinking, well, are you absolutely sure? And um, of course, they're absolutely sure they've done the test. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I think I think it's great that we have found him and that I suppose we have been able to learn more about him as an individual and the way in which he lived his life because of finding these remains. So, you know, the Tudor myth of the well, we can say it is a myth now. The Tudor myth of the withered hand, we know, isn't a thing, but the scoliosis is a thing. So, yeah, I, I in many ways, it raises as many questions as it answers, doesn't it? But if you could discover the truth about another mystery involving the British monarchy, which mystery would you choose? Um, and my next question is, uh, solve the mystery once and for all who killed the princes in the tower. So if you want to, <laughs> if you want to knock both of those out of the park, you can go ahead. I know. See, that's, that's kind of the really obvious one. I wanted to choose something else, but it is the one that genuinely, I would really love to solve that mystery and know what happened to the princes, um, for, for sure. So Sorry, were you going to ask something? No, I was just no, I was waiting for you because I was going to say that that in our podcast interview with with Tracy Borman, she mentioned that the current queen will not allow is it DNA tests or something on the bones that were found? Is it in yeah. the tower they were found? Of yeah, the two young yeah. men. But she said that that the chatter is that King Charles the Third, assuming that he takes that title. Yeah, uh, will allow some sort of testing on the bones. So that has to be kind of an exciting prospect. Yeah, so I've heard, I've heard that. Um, so actually also, 
Um, I'm guessing that you will have seen, did you see that publicity about this church in in Devon where um, they're, they kind of likened it to the Da Vinci Code, right? So there's a tomb there um, to a gentleman named Sir John Evans. And there was this research that had been conducted by um, Philippa Langley as part of the Missing Princes project to suggest that possibly this Sir John Evans was an alias for Edward V. And um, and anyway, I visited this church last month when I was on holiday and I was looking in the visitor's book in the church and there are all these people who've been to visit this church who are writing in there about how they've come to visit the tomb of the lost king. So that's kind of gathered some agency. For what it's worth, I don't think that this tomb does belong to Edward V at all. Um, but there are people out there who do. And so there are always theories coming to the fore about what happens to the princes in the tower, I think is what I'm trying to get at. Um, but yeah, absolutely. As Tracy said, as Dr. Borman said, that apparently the talk is that Prince Charles becomes king is more amenable to having those remains found in the tower now in Westminster Abbey DNA tested. Um, but, you know, even if that happens, again, all that that will tell us is whether those remains are those of the princes or not. And everything else remains open to speculation because, yeah, people well, will never agree. One of the things that that uh, that Tracy said was she actually, I think, kind of made a joke of it. Uh, or she kind of like made a face when she was talking about how powerful the Richard the Third society is in your world. Yeah, yeah, that's so true. And there are there are lots of people who believe that Richard has been given a very very bad press. Um, I'm not a member of the Richard the Third society, but. I do know, so a friend of mine, Matt Lewis, has recently become the chairman of the Richard III Society. And even though um, he doesn't believe that Richard was responsible for removing the princes, I think what I really admire about Matt is that he is really, really balanced. And he he has sort of said himself, you know, if evidence came to the fore that said that Richard had killed these boys, then I'm not going to argue with that. And, and I kind of feel the same, but coming from the opposite side. So I believe that the princes did disappear at Richard's hand. But equally, if evidence came to the force to suggest that that wasn't the case, that's fine. Isn't, isn't there, I don't, correct me, because now I'm trying to remember something I haven't read in a long time, but there was someone else, a, a female. It wasn't Lady Beaufort, was it? That they're trying to blame. It was <laughs> was somebody else, yeah, a woman who is. they're trying. Is it Lady Beaufort? Yeah, Margaret Beaufort. Yeah. <laughs> is it okay? Good. Yeah, yeah, I get that a lot. Um, yeah, and and that's again, a no go for you. No, 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 no. Definitely not. And so you know, I've had this thought, and I am going to do it. I've decided. So there's this, there's a Richard the Third Society, right? 
And I decided that I'm going to found the Margaret Beaufort Society because what I find really frustrating is that sometimes, you know, if you dare to criticise Richard Affairs, people are all over you, right? <laughs> but then they do exactly the same to Margaret Beaufort. And all I'm trying to say is let's treat these two people the same. We didn't know them. I don't know Margaret. I don't know Richard. None of us did. They've been dead for 500 years. So there needs to be an emotional disconnect from these people. And we just need to look at them for who they are. Um, And so that's, that's all. I feel that Margaret gets a bad press. And when I came to research and write my book about her, you know, I did try to do it really objectively. I wasn't coming at it thinking I want to rehabilitate her. I want to make her sound like she was a really good person. It just so happened that that was the conclusion that I came to based on the research that I did. Um, So, you know, I sometimes, I just feel like we perhaps need to bring a bit more balance into the equation where Richard and Margaret are concerned. Will you make sure you send me uh, membership application to the absolutely <laughs> Margaret Beaufort Society, <laughs> and I'm actually <laughs> yes, first one. I'm your first yeah. member. <laughs> uh, I actually, I am. I have. I'm going to order that book. Oh, I'm going to order that because I want to. I want to read about that because she was in the middle of so much. It's hard to believe she survived uh, when when yeah. all those heads were rolling um, during yeah. Lords of the Roses and the immediate aftermath. Um, yeah, she was an amazing woman for sure. Why why speaking of which, my next question, why the hell are the wars of the roses so complicated? <laughs> my yeah. my thesis director in graduate school has a PhD in in medieval history. He wrote about the House of Godwinson. Oh right. Harold the second. Yes. And yeah. so I asked him one time we were having lunch, like, is there what what about history, world history, or whatever? Because he He's a scholar in Roman history and Greek and the Vikings, especially that you find most complicated. And he didn't even hesitate. He said the Wars of the Roses. He goes, I can still kind of barely figure it out. Why are they so complicated? Is it because of the the dispositions of the kings and how the battles went one way and then finally went the other? I, I can only confess I find it complicated. Yeah, no, it is. It's really complicated. And also it's because people keep switching sides. Um, you know, there are there's more than one Duke of Somerset, for example. And, you know, to begin with, there's the Duke of York in opposition to the House of Lancaster, and then he's killed, so it's his son. Uh, yeah, so people keep dying as well, which complicates it. <laughs> and the Duke of York, is not is that Richard Plantagenet? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, father of Edward IV and Richard III, yeah. Who's descended, is it? Is it from... It's not Lionel, is it? Or he's he's descended from Edward the Third from an yeah. older older brother. Yeah, no, he's it's, it's Lionel, isn't it? I isn't think it? Gee, that's really bad. Yeah. I can't remember off the top of my head. But Duke, I, yeah, isn't it right. Lionel Duke of Clarence? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it is Lionel, isn't it? Yeah. Do you have a favorite movie that touches on British history? Monarch, non monarch? Doesn't matter. Um, it's not a movie, but I am a huge fan of the historical drama series Outlander. Have you ever seen that? No. Oh, my goodness. 
It's amazing. So it is, it is Scottish. So, yeah, yeah, it is Scottish. Mm-hmm. It's written by a lady called Diana Gabaldon. Um, yeah, so it's based on a book series, I should say. And it's about this woman, Claire, who goes back in time, basically, to the 18th century, falls in love with a Scottish, um, I don't know what we'd call him, really, a Scottish lord who's also a Scottish outlaw. <laughs> um, but, yeah, and they they have all these adventures and, you know, they try to stop the Battle of Culloden happening um, you know, they end up at Versailles and it's just amazing. It's so good. You have to check it out. It's really good. Is it, is it tough for you? My favorite uh, British movie about British history is Beckett with. Oh, yeah, Richard yeah, that's a, yeah, that's a really good film. Peter O'Toole and Sir John yeah, Gilgood. He's uh, great. Is it tough for you to watch movies when you know, like, Oh my God, that didn't happen. Or, you know, let's see when, when Isabella married the Prince of Wales in real life, she was three, but in the movie Braveheart, she's 20 or whatever. Like, does it make it tougher for you to get through them? Because you're like, all right, that's not even close. Yeah, definitely. More so with Tudor films, because I know more about them. Um, Yeah, it is hard because... I end up just getting frustrated. Nobody wants to sit and watch those films with me because because <laughs> I'll be there saying, "Oh, well, you know that costume's not right. That's wrong. I'm terrible." Um, yeah, so it's really hard <laughs> to just sit there and accept it for what it is. Um, and I, so I've been doing that with Becoming Elizabeth recently. Have you seen any of that, Becoming Elizabeth? No. Okay, um, I've heard so- about it, but I haven't seen it. Okay, so yeah, I've watched, I don't know, maybe three or four episodes now. And I do genuinely, I really appreciate all the research that's gone into the history side of it. And there are things that I think have been done really, really well. And so I really, really admire all of that. But yeah, there's a couple of things where I'm like, oh no, like the chronology is wrong there, or I don't get why they've done that. And yeah, it's <laughs> it's I had hard someone ask me, say, I bet you'd be really fun to watch Braveheart with. And I chuckled. I'm like, no, I'd probably be. I, I, you said when you looked at me shaking my head and obviously I don't have a PhD and my uh, research was in the 14th, 15th century. But I like you, if you read, if you took one lecture on that time period, you would realize how horribly, you know, wrong that movie is. But, you know, Mel Gibson cop to it. He said, look, it's a dramatization. It's not meant to be a documentary, which I thought is, you know, probably the best way to put it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's true, Doctor, but it's too hard, right, to accept it yeah. for that. Yeah. Dr. Borman and I agreed that the first movie about Elizabeth with Kate Blanchett was superb, mm. and the second movie about Elizabeth with Kate Blanchett was horrid. Yeah. What is your movie review? Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's quite a good description, actually. I think, um, yeah, the second one... It's been some years since I watched it fully, but I mean, yeah, that whole thing with the Armada, um, I just couldn't get my head around. And I mean, she's there kind of with this full suit of armor on and these flowing golden locks. And I don't know. And I just think why? And even the speech wasn't 
100% correct, you know, whereas I feel like with the first one, they did do a really good job of capturing the uncertainty of Elizabeth's path to the throne and the dangers that she faced. So, yeah, I think the difference between I completely agree with the two of you, the difference between the first and the second was night and day, really. We have a few more minutes with Dr. Nicola Tallis, one of the world's best selling. And as you can tell already from listening to her during this podcast, one of the world's most delightful historians. Uh, I'm going to ask you just a few questions more, and then we'll get to the five questions we ask all of our guests. It's almost sort of a rapid fire thing here, but but take your time in answering. I know it's okay. getting late over in England. Which monarch do you believe had the most unjust and gruesome death? Oh, gosh. Okay. Um, oh, goodness. On the spot. Um I'm going to say, I'm going to say Harold Godwinson. Do I have to explain? Well, just briefly, if you want. Sure. And, and you want um, to tell, tell us why you choose him over Edward II, who I think was Tracy Borman's vote, if you believe the poker story? Well, yeah. No, the only reason I, um, because I know that there are theories that Edward II wasn't actually murdered. So that is the only reason I didn't choose him. Um, but Harold Godwinson, and I I admit I know hardly anything about this period, but you know that whole thing in the Bear Tapestry about how he's shot with an arrow in the eye. And I know that there's talk now that actually that didn't happen. But either way, um, I think dying in battle must have been pretty unpleasant and pretty gruesome. Um, and I think it would have been interesting to see what would have happened if we had not been conquered by the Normans at that time. Yeah, Dr. Borman and I talked about that because so much of English history at the time was oriented towards the North and influenced by the Vikings. Like, you know, how much would our language have changed? And, you know, would yeah. Parliament have been the way that it is and and all the sorts, everything that even Mott and Bailey castles that, that yeah. the conqueror brought over to England? Yeah. Which monarch do you believe is overdue for a reappraisal by historians? Henry VII. Totally, um, I should have said this earlier, totally underrated and bad reputation that I think is largely undeserved, deserves much more of the limelight in terms of the Tudors and personally one of my favorite monarchs. Would you have voted to execute Charles I? Oh, golly. No, I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't. Bad king made bad choices. Um, I don't know. I'd have popped him. I'd have put him in, in prison somewhere, left him in prison. Would you have voted to execute Mary, Queen of Scots? Gosh, because um, Susanna Lipscomb's point was well, she got executed for treason, but she's not British. She's the queen of an entirely different country. So or she's not English, I should say. So yeah. why did she get executed for something that she can't be accused yeah. of? I, yeah, I would go along with that. And I would say, no, I wouldn't execute her. You're soft hearted. All right. This is the <laughs> e this next question is the easiest question you're ever going to get in your life except for when your husband said will you marry me 
Okay. Would you have voted to execute Lady Jane Grey? No, absolutely <laughs> not. Of all the three that you've just said, and you're right, that is the easiest question ever. Um, no, <laughs> no way. That's She never deserved that, no. If you could go back in time and box the ears of any English or British monarch, whom would it be? <laughs> I love that. That's really funny. Um, it would be, it would be, it would be Queen Victoria. Because, Why? Because she disappeared? Yeah, because she disappeared. And it, so this is where I'm not soft hearted because I understand she was grieving, but I think after a certain amount of time, she just needed to, you know, pull herself out of it and try and remember that she was a queen and, you know, that she had duties to fulfill. Do you have a choice for the most impactful English or British dynasty? Um, I think... I think it has to be the Windsors, our present dynasty, because they are still impacting and influencing our lives today. As you said, you know, people all across the world are fascinated with them, continue to be fascinated with them. You know, we judge them on the decisions that they make and have made. Um, they continue to draw controversy and debate and yeah, there've been some good decisions, some bad decisions. Which figure in English or British history to you represents the most consequential premature death? Um, and, and, and Dr. Borman was like, I think you just given me a book idea, Robert. So I just said, <laughs> just, but make me a co-author and I'm happy to turn it over to you. Well, there you go. <laughs> um, okay. I think James, the first son, Henry Prince of Wales, um, because if we had had him, who knows, maybe we wouldn't have had an English civil war. And he was very well thought of. Yeah. Contemporary. Yeah, I quite like him. I don't, I don't think Tracy's quite as keen, but I quite like him. What about, uh, I'll throw a couple of the names out here, Edward the Black Prince, who dies a year before his father. Yeah, again, I think he would have been a really good king also. Definitely better than his son, let's face it. <laughs> <laughs> Henry V. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I think that was maybe Tracy's choice. Dr. Borman's okay. choice, I think, was Henry V, that he had a chance well, to be so he's already a, a phenomenal military leader and monarch, but he had a chance to just be. Yeah. And also, actually, having thought about it, if it would have meant that we didn't have to have Henry the Sixth, or not for quite as long anyway, then maybe maybe lives would have been saved. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> uh, we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast or maybe before it started that, that I'm ready. To, I'm going back to England for more visits. It's my favorite place in the world, but have you yeah. been to the United States? And if you have, did you enjoy it? Or if you haven't, when do you think you'll swing by your former possession? 
Yeah, no, I have been. I've been, I can't say I've traveled widely. Um, I've been to, I've been to New York, which I absolutely loved. And, uh, you know, it's crazy and amazing at the same time. Just, you stand there and you go, okay, this is the biggest city in the world. Like, yeah, I love it. It's so cool. But actually my husband and I um, have spoken about the fact we both really like to come and travel in the U.S., um yeah I would love to come I would love to come um no immediate plans but you know I'm always open for offers (laughs) (laughs) we've reached the point in the leaders and legends podcast where we ask the same five questions of all of our guests professor Tallis Dr. Nicola Tallis are you ready I'm ready number one what was your first job I was a waitress at a hotel Hated it. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that we've had the answer. I was a waitress and I loved it. It's always, I was a waitress and I hated it. Oh yeah. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Number two, what was your first concert? My first concert was Craig David, who I still, Oh, Craig David is amazing. I still love him to this day. He's amazing. He's a British artist, but he's brilliant. A very unique answer for those of us here in the United States. (laughs) Check him out. (laughs) Number three, if you could suggest any book for someone to read, which book would you recommend? Um, This one is one of my personal favorites. It is historical fiction and it is Anya Seton's Catherine. I guess you would have known it. You would have read this one. Yeah. Amazing book. Number four, this is always tough for historians. Number four, if you could witness any event in history, be there in person as it happens, which event would you choose? Okay, so we talked about this one earlier, and it would be the Battle of Bolsworth because it was, as we spoke about, such a pivotal turning point in our history. But also, as I mentioned earlier, it's also one of the most poorly documented battles so i'd love to be able to know more about that and how it played out last question if you could have dinner with anyone living today two living today two hours off the record just to chat whom would you choose i would choose kate the duchess of cambridge and i would ask her how she goes about choosing her wardrobe or her beautiful outfits. And <laughs> and I would ask her for the name and number of her stylist. <laughs> maybe alone? Yeah, maybe. <laughs> you have been listening to Leaders and Legends, a podcast presented by Veteran Strategies, a local veteran public relations enterprise and sponsored by Girl Scouts of Central Indiana, Garmon Construction, Leaders and Legends, LLC, the Grand Hall and Conference Center at Historic Union Station, the McGinley's Golden Ace Inn, and McAllister Machinery, your friendly neighborhood Caterpillar dealer. Our guest today has been historian and best-selling author, Dr. Nicola Tallis. Dr. Tallis, you have been an absolute delight. Thank you so much for your time. We've I, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed the discussion. Oh, me too. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. 
Thank you very much for listening to Leaders and Legends, brought to you by Veteran Strategies Incorporated. If you want to contact us about this program or our menu of public relations services, please send us an email at robert at veteranstrategies.com. That's robert at veteranstrategies.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Chris Spangle and Leaders and Legends, LLC. If you're interested in starting a podcast or taking yours to the next level, please contact us at leadersandlegends.net.